Well, let's pray. Well, Father, you are a mighty fortress. You are our refuge in the midst of storms. You are the sure and steady anchor. And I pray that this message will be encouraging to, to all who need it to have greater trust in you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, one of the Hintz family favorite movies is Twister. You guys ever seen Twister? We watch it every spring. We may not watch it this spring because it might be too much excitement for our house right now. But they're going to come out with a sequel. Do you know what the sequel is going to be called? Twisters. Right? Twice the Twisters. Now, for those of you who are uninitiated, it was released in 1996, and it follows Dr. Joe Harding, who is played by Helen Hunt, who has this infatuation with Twisters because she watched her father get sucked into the vortex of an E5 tornado. And so she and her crack team of tornado chasers and her estranged husband come together to try to plant this device called Dorothy in the middle of a tornado so that they could save lives and buy time with their precious research. It's a thin plot, but the special effects are awesome. (laughs) But you know, there is something about tornadoes, right? If you are scrolling through Facebook and you see a tagline, watch this tornado shred a warehouse, what are you going to do? Okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to stop and watch that. Right? There is something about the destructive force of nature that creates amazement and some terror. This past week, many people in the South lost their lives because of right, tornadoes. Now, mankind, we can control a lot of things, can't we? You look at how... Uh, in the 50s, they were able to rebreed wheat so that we could feed billions of people. Uh, we were able to develop medical devices and find different cures for certain ailments. In the Netherlands, they were able to push back the sea by building these giant seawalls or, or dikes. But the truth be told, There's only so much that we can do against certain destructive forces like twisters and hurricanes. They're a reminder that there are some forces in nature that are stronger than us. And some of these forces have actually been turned against us. Now, when God created the world, he created it and it was good, right? The air was given to be a home for for the birds and to give us oxygen to, to breathe. Uh, the water and the rains, waters the earth, causes plants to grow. But on account of the curse, some of these things have been twisted where the wind that, that circulates heat and temperature and, and basically drives a weather system that has blessed so many can coalesce and swirl into a tight spiral and destroy, whether it be a tornado or a hurricane, right? And all the rain that waters and refreshes the earth, there is such a thing as too much of a good thing, right? That causes flooding and destruction. And when you look at it, weather 
is the source of terror for so many people. And it terrorized the disciples, as we see in Luke 8, 22 through 25. One day he got into a boat, Jesus, with his disciples and said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. And so they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, and woke him saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him? Now, previously, Jesus just established the primacy of his word, the need to hear his word and obey his word. Now, in this next section, he's about to do four different miracles, cast out demons, raise the dead, heal the sick, and in this case, still the storm. Jesus is pushing back on the curse in all of this. He reveals himself to be the Lord of the universe, and when you're Lord of the universe, your word means a lot. That's how they're related. And he is making a a demonstration about his power, that he is the ruler over all nature, that Jesus is actually the climate changer. Now, I came across an interesting article earlier this month. It's about a phenomenon called climate anxiety. You guys ever heard that term, climate anxiety? Or it's also called eco-anxiety. It's, it's distress related to worries over climate change. And they did a survey of 16 to 25-year-olds, and this is what they found. 59% are extremely worried or very worried about climate change. 62% are anxious about climate change. And 67% are afraid of climate change. There's a whole generation that is having mental trauma over the prospect of weather. Isn't that interesting? And this is what the researcher says. Higher climate change anxiety is correlated with higher clinical symptoms of depression and anxiety. And so how do you cope? This is what the researcher says. But what we saw was that for young people who have high levels of climate anxiety, if they also have high levels of activism, then we didn't see any higher levels of depression symptoms. That's one way to deal with climate anxiety. But there's another way, and that is to trust Jesus Christ, the climate changer, the ruler of all nature. The one who can stop evil cold. Now, there's many ways I could have preached this message, right? We could talk about the storms of your life, how Jesus can steal those. But this is really a bigger statement about who Jesus is, who can calm the actual storms. And someone who is that powerful can be trusted to do so much more. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at the request and the rebukes and the response and really think about who Jesus is in light of the fact that he can change the climate, that he is the ruler of all nature. 
So we'll start at the beginning with the request and what motivated this. Look at verse 22. One day he got into a boat with his disciples and they said to him, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. So Jesus decides that he wants to cross the Sea of Galilee and they want to get into a boat. Now, Nate, you probably saw this in the museum, but they actually unearthed a, a boat, a vessel, around the time of Jesus about 35 years ago, and it's about 27 feet long, 7.5 feet wide, and 4 feet high, right? Big enough that all the disciples could get into it. They'd either sail or they would row, but they're in the middle of the lake. They're crossing the lake. And verse 23, and as they sailed, he fell asleep, right? Nice, soothing midnight ride. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. Now, in this case, the forces of nature turn. Now, the Sea of Galilee is six times larger than Lake Melbourne. It's about 64 square miles, and it sits 700 feet below sea level. And so this is what happens. You have some cold air from, let's say, Mount Hermon that kind of drifts down towards this little cauldron over here. Then you have warm air that kind of rises. It collides, and all the mountains can actually start channeling the wind so that it reaches gusts of up to 60 miles per hour. There was a storm in the early 90s, and the waves were 10 feet tall. Can you imagine? Now, in comparison... In 2012, Superstorm Sandy hit the Northeast, and it sank the HMS Bounty. And you're thinking, the HMS Bounty was out in the waters during Superstorm Sandy? Well, it was actually a movie replica. Marlon Brando was the star of a 1962 hit, The Mutiny on the Bounty, and so they actually built a 180-foot, 412-ton sailing vessel that was like the actual bounty. And it was a tourist attraction off the coast of North Carolina. And so when the storm came, they sailed it out to sea and they were battered by 40 mile per hour winds. And let's see, how big were the waves? 18 foot waves. It began to take on water and it sunk. And that goes to show you what a pre-modern sailing vessel does when it encounters a storm. That's why all these sailing movies, the best scenes are the storm scenes, aren't they? They're riveting. What is going to happen? And in verse 23, the storm came and they were filling with water and were in danger. Now, you can just imagine James, John, Andrew, and Peter are seasoned fishermen. They have probably never seen a storm like this. They are trying to align the bow so that it faces the wave so the boat does not capsize. And all the water, while water is splashing into the vessel at a greater rate than they can bail it out. They are at the brink of sinking. They have tried everything. And what is Jesus doing? Right? As they sailed, he fell asleep. Now, there's many mysteries in the Bible. How can Jesus be 100% man and 100% God? 
How can the Trinity be three in one? How, how can you reconcile the sovereignty of God with human responsibility? And then how could Jesus sleep during a storm like this? Right? I have no idea. Now, it could be that he was extraordinarily tired. He was a man after all. He kept a busy schedule. He served people. And so this might be testament to just his sheer exhaustion. But I think there's probably a, a more likely reason. I remember when uh, a friend of mine in high school was talking about driving with a friend of his and, and said he's such a good driver that he could sleep in the car. Right? Now, have you parents ever given your kids driving lessons? I know when my mom gave me driving lessons, we were driving a 1970 Monte Carlo. It's about 10 feet wide. And I was a, uh, I was a side hugger when it came to the car. Right, And so as mailboxes are going about inches from her face, my mom is like, oh, David, oh, she was not going to sleep in the car because she didn't trust the driver. Well, in this case, Jesus is sleeping. Well, in Psalm 4, 8, in peace, I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Jesus wasn't worried about this. But that was not the case with the disciples. They were worried about this. And they went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. They sensed that their lives were in mortal danger. They, they did everything they could. And then they call on Jesus. And that's when Jesus starts to issue some rebukes. Beginning in verse 24. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves. So he wakes up from sleep. He gets up and he rebukes. We know from Mark. What was a rebuke? Peace be still. Now, this is a very odd way of dealing with a storm, isn't it? Like when you rebuke someone, a coach rebukes his player for being lazy or missing an assignment. A mom rebukes her son for being careless and spilling milk. A Christian might rebuke another Christian for, you know, their failure to honor Christ with their with life choices, right? Rebukes are, are saved for those instances where somebody is doing something wrong. And in this case, Jesus is rebuking who? The wind and the waves. Now, when you look at storms in the Bible... Right? There's some famous storms. Storms are often a sign of judgment. Remember the ten plagues of Egypt? One of the plagues was a hail storm. Another famous storm, and you probably know which one I'm talking about, similar situation in a boat, large storm comes upon them, it was Jonah. Right? It was a storm of judgment that God sent to judge the Israelite, not the Israelites, the Egyptians, and then eventually to, uh, to judge Jonah. Now, in this case, God is not judging Jesus. He won't judge Jesus until he gets to the cross. And so that can't explain the force behind the storm. But when you look at the opening chapters of Job, do you remember how his children died? God allowed Satan to use the weather to kill Job's children. See, when you look at the Gospels, 
you see that there was satanic opposition to Jesus every step of the way. Right? When he was born, Satan worked through Herod to send the brute squad to try to kill all the baby boys of Bethlehem. When Jesus began his ministry, when he was about to begin it, what did Satan do? Try to disqualify Jesus by tempting him in the wilderness. When Jesus talked about how he must suffer and die on the cross, Peter tried to stop him. And remember what Jesus asked him? Peter, why has Satan so filled your heart? And then speaking of filling hearts, who moved within Judas to betray Jesus? Satan. Satan's always trying to take Jesus out. And so here he is in the middle of Galilee. What better time to shortcut his ministry than to flip him in a boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee? And so Jesus rebukes the storm. In fact, you look at that movie Twister, right? Who's the bad guy in Twister? I know the guy could play by Carrie Elton, you know, the evil black minivan driving scientist. But really, the, the real bad guy is the wind, right? It's a meteorological monster. It's something, a dark force that has turned. And in this case, Jesus, he cast out demons, he cast out death, he cast out sickness, and now he cast out the dark weather. And this is what happens, okay? So he rebukes the wind, rebukes the waves, and then we see another miracle, verse 24, and they ceased and there was calm. Churning lake all of a sudden becomes calm. If you like to water ski, this would be the perfect time to do it. Placid and still. Now, this is a miracle because there is a lot of energy in a storm that is transferred to the water. In fact, Sebastian Younger, who wrote this book, uh, The Perfect Storm, another awesome Man Against Nature movie, he writes this about a hurricane. A mature hurricane is by far the most powerful event on Earth. The combined nuclear arsenals of the United States and the former Soviet Union do not contain enough energy to keep the hurricane going for one day. A typical hurricane encompasses a million cubic miles of atmosphere and could provide all electric power needed by the United States for three or four years. They've done a study where if you take a, a one mile long, four foot wave and take that moves for 10 seconds, the energy of that one mile, four foot wave in 10 seconds is equivalent to 69 cars, 35,000 horsepower. There is a lot of energy in that lake and it all dissipates with the command and the rebuke of Jesus, right? That is stunning. That was the first rebuke. And then he turns, he looks at his disciples, and what's the second rebuke? Right? Where is your faith? Where's your faith? Now, Jesus, he commends people's faith in Luke, right? Remember the, the paralytic? His friends were commended for their faith. The centurion, who had a sick servant, he was commended for his faith. The sinful woman who anoints his, his feet, She's commended for her faith. We see later on the hemorrhaging woman, the Samaritan leper, the blind man in Jericho. They're all commended for their faith, but the disciples are asked a question, where is your faith? 
Now, you can make an argument that the disciples had some faith, right? They call him master, not once, but twice. And then secondly, they do go to him and they wake him up. And, and why would he go to Jesus? Right? Jesus doesn't know how to sail, presumably. He doesn't know the, the waters on Galilee like Peter, James, John, and, and uh, Andrew. Why go to Jesus? Well, they had no other option. We tried everything we can. We're about to go down. Let's go to Jesus and see what he can do. So there is some faith, right? So what exactly is being rebuked here? Well, one commentator says this. He does not chide them for disturbing him with their prayers, but for disturbing themselves with their fears. What's really being assaulted here is the panic, the fear. We're going to die. And I think there's three reasons why Jesus rebukes them on this. And part of this is he is training his disciples on what it means to have a life of faith. Number one, they should realize that Jesus had been clearly set apart by God for a special purpose. In the Gospel of John, one of the phrases we read over and over again is about my hour has not yet come. Jesus knew that his days were numbered and he was not going to die on a boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. When he's suspended on the cross in Jerusalem, then he will die, not before then. The disciples should understand that when you're with Jesus in the boat, the boat's not going down because Jesus is going to survive. His days are numbered. Number two, they should have known that he was a man with great power. They watched Jesus cast out demons. They watched him heal diseases. They watched him do a long-distance miracle. There is nothing that Jesus can't do. You see, a lot of times, we, we are quick. Let's say in a medical emergency, we don't need Jesus, we need a doctor. In a marital crisis, right? We don't need Jesus, we need a marriage therapist. In a financial crisis, we don't need Jesus, we need a bank officer. And you can imagine that the Disciples all looked around and said, who can get us out of this situation? And Peter, James, John, and Andrew, the experienced fishermen, probably stepped up and took the lead. And when that failed, what do they do? Now it's time to talk to Jesus. You ever been there? Now it's time to talk to Jesus. When all else fails, go to God. They should have also realized that Jesus was a man with great compassion. Um, perhaps they didn't think that he would want to do anything about it. Do you remember when the Israelites were on the banks of the Red Sea? God delivered them through a series of miracles. And the Egyptian army was bearing down on them. And what did they do? They, they panicked and started accusing God. There are many times when they were lacking food in the wilderness and they accused God of, you just brought us out here to kill us. Lacking compassion, lacking his goodness. Where is your faith? Now, the disciples probably had different, um, a combination of these factors. 
But all of them were missing their faith, and that led them to, to panic. But they had no reason to. They had no reason to. Jesus was going to act, and you see the response. One response is, the sea is calm. The second response is, they were afraid and marveled. Jesus took his power to the next level. When you look at the Old Testament, when a prophet acts, um, is not direct action like you see with Jesus. Like when, when Moses announces the storm that will produce the hail, do you know what he does? He has to wave his hand, right? He has to do some, some motion. It's almost like a signal for God to act at that point in time. When Elijah, remember how Elijah prophesied a drought and when he made it rain again, what did he do? He got down on his face and he prayed. Jesus doesn't do any hand gestures that we know of. I mean, maybe if this was going to be in a movie, he probably does something because it looks better and cooler. He doesn't pray. He doesn't talk to God. He talks to the storm and rebukes it on the basis of his own authority. He shows that he's not an ordinary man. He has a power that is unique to God. In fact, turn with me to Psalm 107. Psalm 107 is a very interesting psalm. Uh, It basically speaks of God being the rescuer or the savior. And and there's four different contexts where God rescues and saves. And in verse 23 and following, we see that he saves in the midst of a storm. Now, if you're in a sailing vessel, a pre-modern sailing vessel, right, being at sea, that would be one of the most terrifying adventures or situations you could imagine. Agreed? Starting verse 23. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised a stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Right, you see the motion, staggering, moving. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. Jesus answered their plight. He stilled the storm just like the Lord did in Psalm 107. He exercises his dominion over weather. He is a ruler of all nature. He is the climate changer. You see, this is a recognition that part of the curse is fallen weather. You ever thought about that? Will there be hurricanes in heaven? Will there be tornadoes in heaven? See, right now, the earth is cursed. Romans 1, 18 through 21. Paul says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. 
For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Right? Our weather system is broken. There are droughts. Sometimes there's too much rain, too little rain. Sometimes there's too little wind, right? Especially when there's a drought. And then sometimes there is too much wind. Sometimes the weather that we need to live can turn on us and kill us and kill the people that we love, right? Weather is broken. It is a sign of the curse. And you know what? People are right to have climate change anxiety, Because who's really in control of the weather, right? But God allows this present evil weather system for a purpose. We know from Romans 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Then in Genesis 5.50.20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God allows deadly storms for his good purpose. So what might those purposes be? And, and the answer to this changes from situation to situation. I think number one, dangerous weather reminds us of our frailty. Reminds us of our frailty. Now we can put people on the moon. We can splice atoms. We can create artificial hearts, but you can't change the trajectory of a hurricane or a tornado. Elihu says this of God in Job 37, 6, For to the snow, he says, fall on the earth, likewise to the downpour, his mighty downpour. It is God who says, rain, don't rain. He is the one who's sovereign over the weather. He is the one who controls the weather. Now, some people will object to this. It's pretty interesting that after some catastrophic climate event, there's always a discussion about what? What can we do to make sure that this doesn't happen again? You all might remember Superstorm Sandy, right? It was a hurricane that got downgraded to a tropical depression, but they called it the Superstorm because it played better. And on the eve of the election, it became the number one defining issue and one of the differences between the Republican and Democratic candidate at the time was climate policy. Enter Al Gore, who said this, Hurricane Sandy is a disturbing sign of things to come. We must heed this warning and act quickly to solve the climate crisis. Dirty energy makes dirty weather. Right? If we reduce carbon dioxide, we stop the greenhouse gases, from going up in the atmosphere, trapping heat, and creating stronger, more frequent, more powerful storms. Now, I'm not disputing the science. I'm not going to get into a climate debate. But it is interesting, right, that there is a sense that we can do something to control the weather. That if we do enough, band together, we can stop Superstorm Sandys from happening. This is what I call the Tower of Bible mindset, right? 
is faith in humanity. It's to see humans as the solution to the climate crisis. Do you see the problem with that? Now, is it true that humans might influence the climate? That could be true. But do you know who influences humans? God does. Who influences the weather? God does. All those things are under his control. And if these catastrophic storms drive you to science and humanity, you're missing the whole point. You see, weather is to remind us of our frailty, not of our potential. That is the message. You can't redirect a hurricane. You can't unwind a tornado. Only God can do that. When that happens, you're to remember that you are but a frail human being. Secondly, dangerous weather draws us close to God. John MacArthur shares a story of a hardened sea captain who is very vocal about his atheism. One night during a storm, he was washed overboard, and as he was desperately asking for help, the sailors heard him pray to God to save him, and he was saved. The next day, the crew asked him, I thought you didn't believe in God, and the captain said, well, if there isn't a God, there ought to be one for times like this, right? It's amazing how a crisis will turn people into a theist pretty quickly. Right When you're confronted, I remember watching a, um, a video footage of the Joplin tornado, and there was a group of people who all got into a freezer at a convenience store, and somebody recorded it. And you hear one person saying the Lord's Prayer, another person saying, Jesus, 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 another kid saying, I love everybody, Right? Everybody was praying in their own way, right? That's what a crisis does. It draws us closer to God. We realize that, that there's something above us that only he can rescue us. Dangerous weather also draws us closer together, right? If there was a tornado that went through this town, what do you think we all would be doing the next day? We'd be cleaning it up, loving our neighbors, and not just us, everybody. Come together to care for each other because we all realize that, yeah, this was an awful event and human compassion is moved in such occasions. Fourthly, dangerous weather reminds us of the awfulness of sin. Right? Sin has catastrophic consequences. When a tsunami sweeps somebody out to sea, we are reminded that this is a result of the curse. When a tornado tears through a trailer park and kills men, women, and children, we're reminded that this world is not as it should be. There is a longing for a new planet, and this is where the climate change people are right, right? They want a planet without climate storms. We want that too. And that will happen when... Jesus' kingdom comes. There will be no storms of that nature in heaven. Fifth, dangerous weather is possibly a means of God's judgment. For the wages of sin is what? It's death. And death comes in many forms. 
Sometimes it comes in the form of cancer. Sometimes it comes in the form of an auto accident. I mean, all of us are going to die. And whose fault is it that we're going to die? The wages of sin is death, right? Deadly storms are often a means of God's judgment. Now, with that, we have to be careful. You don't judge people. Like when New Orleans gets hit, you think, well, they celebrate Mardi Gras. No wonder. Jesus remarks on this when he points to the power of Siloam. In Luke 13, 4 through 5, of those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? He doesn't say that they were innocent, right? Do you think that they were worse offenders? See, Jesus points to the tragedy, and then he says this, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Right? There is an awakening that is supposed to happen that this is coming for you. We had one child who had a deathly fear of tornadoes. They were very heavenly minded. They looked forward to heaven. But anytime there was a cloud in the sky during the spring, they got nervous. We probably shouldn't show them Twister. <laughs> Parenting fail, I admit. Is, but it was Becky's idea, so. <laughs> but that was an opportunity to talk about trusting God, right? Talking about trusting God. And I think about many of the young people who, who deal with this climate anxiety. You have a choice, right? You can trust in man and yourself to try to fix what's really unfixable, right? There's no promise that they'll eliminate all tornadoes and hurricanes, Right? There's only a promise that you might reduce the number. See, the the cure to climate anxiety is faith in Jesus Christ. Because ultimately, why we fear them is they might bring upon what reality? Death. Might bring upon death. But as we're going to celebrate this week, Jesus died so that he might kill death. He put death to death on the cross. That, that sin that merits God's wrath was transferred to him who was without sin. He died so that God could forgive us, and then he raised from the dead so that we can live eternally. And that is the hope that we have. You know, there will be a climate apocalypse. Did you know that? Storms are promised in the great tribulation. Things will get worse. But those who find their refuge in Christ, the climate changer, will be rescued not only from that apocalypse, but the true apocalypse, right? Now, there's another application here, too. There is some truth to the fact that if Jesus can address the actual catastrophic storms and save people's life, If you argue from the greater to the lesser, isn't it true that whatever panics you, he can calm as well, and he can remedy the situation? There is a place where Jesus is saying, well, why didn't you ask? Why wasn't your first instinct to go to me? And that's also the lesson. It's not only about who 
he is as the climate changer, the divine son of God. But there's also a statement to the disciples, why didn't you ask? A lot of times we think that faith is just this one time, I believed and now I'm good. But faith is a lifestyle and how you react during the quote-unquote storms of life is, is really revealing about the life of faith that you currently live. Agreed? In all of this, you can go to Jesus. He has the power and he has a willingness. Don't insult his power by thinking he's too busy to listen to you and your requests. And don't insult his love by thinking that he doesn't really want to hear what is panicking and disturbing you. In all of this, you can go to Jesus and he will change the weather, change the circumstance, or give you the grace to endure the difficulties of life so that you might have the peace of Christ which transcends all understanding. Because Jesus can calm the storms, right? Because he can calm the storms. He can do anything. And he wants to hear from you, his disciples. Let's pray. Well, Father, we come before you just grateful for uh, this story of your son who has demonstrated remarkable power. I think about what a friend we have in Jesus, and it's good to have powerful friends, and he is the most powerful. Lord, I pray that this will drive us to cast all our anxieties upon you, uh, to freely go to Jesus so that he can address what troubles us, what panics us, and what makes us anxious. Lord, will you give us the faith that we don't have? Will you strengthen what little faith we do have? And may we um, just take much comfort in the power, concern, care, and compassion of Jesus in the midst of, of this storm, should we face lesser storms in our own life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.